Hey there, I'm Sierra Debro, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Toro with a Twist. Settle in and grab something nice to drink, because God was in this podcast, and we, we did not know until we hit record. Hi, I'm Gabe Snyder, a third-year cantorial student at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. And I'm Amanda, a third-year rabbinical student at HECJR in New York. We are so excited to welcome you back to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist. We are thrilled to have Koach Fraser and Sierra Debro. And to ask our guests some questions, I'm personally excited to welcome a close friend of mine, Calix Jacobson. Without further ado, let's start the show. to begin our ninth episode with Koak Baruch Frazier and Sierra J. Debro. Truly a, a team to reckon with as we go into our last Parsha of Genesis, Vayichi. Such an exciting moment. We're also thrilled to welcome our classmate and wonderful friend, Calix Jacobson. Sierra, Koach, Calix, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to be here. I would be remiss if I didn't welcome back my favorite co-host, Gabe Snyder. Welcome back, Gabe. Good to be back. And of course, as always, say hello to our favorite ever producer, Edon Waldman. How's it going? This is a real celebration for us. Not only are we coming to the end of our first book of Torah, but we're also having our first ever episode with a duo with two amazing, incredible guests. They have so much in common, you wouldn't believe it. You may hear something about it later on. But before we get too deep, I want to make sure to do them justice by reading their bios. So first, Koach Baruch K.B. Fraser is a transformer, heartbeat of movements, healer, musician, and co-founder of the Setic Lab, a network of practitioners working at the intersection of dismantling racism, anti-Semitism, and white supremacy. A collaborative leader rooted in tradition, curiosity, and love, Koach strives to dismantle racism, actualize liberation, and transform lives both sonically and spiritually. Koach lives with their wife, Luana, in Philadelphia, where he is a student at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, which also means, Koach, heads up, you're our first guest from RRC. Fantastic. I think this is where we say the Shekianu, right? <laughs> <laughs> We might save it for a little later in the show. Uh, with that, we also are thrilled to introduce Sierra J. Debro. They are a non-binary second-year MSW student at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. Originally from Charleston, South Carolina, Sierra grew up in a trans-denominational Jewish setting, engaging reform, conservative, and orthodox communities throughout their upbringing. Their passion for Jewish education and Jewish community building only grew as they attended and worked at the URJ Kutz camp from 2009-2019. Ten years! That's amazing! Their experiences at Kutz, both working with the Mitzvah Corps slash Gibush program and as a camper, helped Sierra envision a future for Jewish spaces that is accessible and inclusive for each person 
person, especially for disabled and queer Jews. After graduating from the College of Charleston in 2017, Sarah worked as an education fellow at the Goldring Woldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life. As they finish up their studies at Washington University in St. Louis, they hope to continue dedicating their career to issues of accessibility and representation for and by disabled and queer individuals. Yeah, that that would be me. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with all of you, especially as I'm sort of in a transition in my life from student to the start of hopefully a great career in Jewish education and Jewish nonprofit work. Wonderful. We are so excited to have you both on the show, both because we wanted to really talk about Vayechi from a little bit of a critical lens today, and also because our guests on the show today all represent a really beautiful sector of Jewish life, which is queer Jewish life. And so Sierra, Koach, and Kalix, um, and we'll eventually have Kalix come back to our show in the Q&A section, we're so interested to know in how you translate your personal lives and your religious lives and how they intersect. Hey, Amanda, guess what? What, Gabe? We're on Parashat Vayechi. Well, that sounds like the life. Nice. That's funny. Parsha rundown time? I don't know. Do you feel like you're up for it? I don't know. Let's find out. 30 seconds or less? Not even close. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely more. (laughs) Go for it. Guess what? We're on Parashat Vayechi, which means he lived. Well, we're not sure how we got here, but believe it or not, with Vayechi, we have lived, haha, our way through the book of Genesis. Okay, well, from Abraham at least. Jacob slash Israel is settled in Egypt, feeling fine despite the famine, and benefiting from Joseph's good friends in high places, all in all, living the good life. So we start this parasha with Vayechi telling us that Jacob lived 17 years in Egypt, living 147 years in total. Knowing his end was coming soon, Jacob slash Israel makes Joseph promise that his final resting place will be back in Canaan with Abraham and Isaac. Joseph promises and soon afterward he gets word that his father is ill. Approaching his father's deathbed, similar to how Jacob approached Isaac years before, it appears that Jacob has the ability to be cunning and discerning to the very end. Jacob tells Joseph about promising to make him fertile and numerous and takes Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons, who he notices standing there shortly after he creates this makeshift adoption announcement. Jacob's eyes might have been dim like Isaac's at the end, but he has more than enough blessing to go around. Deciding to continue the lineage of blessing the youngest son over the elder, Jacob blesses Ephraim with his right hand crossing his left over to Manasseh, and to the objection of Joseph stating that Ephraim will in fact be greater than Manasseh in the end. Sibling rivalry exists even when it's unwillingly thrust upon the siblings. If that weren't enough, Jacob also gives an additional portion to Joseph over those of his brothers, showing favoritism one last time, and then calls his sons in for his last words. Some of them aren't pretty, some of them, well, they're just downright petty. Judging each son by their best and or worst qualities, he disgraces Reuben, curses and then divides Simeon and Levi, gives sovereignty to Judah, sends Zebulun to the sea, makes Issachar a toiling serf, lists Dan as a venomous ruler, has Gad in constant conflict, gives wealth to Asher, has nothing to say about Naphtali, lifts up Joseph in front of his brothers for one last hit at how they're beneath him, and names Benjamin as a warrior who justly divides the spoils. After all this, he begs them to bury him in heaven with his ancestors and then dies. Jacob truly has a mic drop moment with his final breath. 
Joseph has Jacob embalmed for 40 days, and then he himself asks a favor of Pharaoh to be buried in Canaan. Pharaoh sends him to go bury his father in Canaan, which he does, along with his family and an Egyptian entourage. Joseph's brothers, afraid that Joseph's patience has died with their father, fling themselves before him, but Joseph reassures them, saying everything's a-okay. After becoming a great-grandfather, Joseph asks to be buried in Canaan, but when he turns 110 and dies, he is interred in a coffin in Egypt. And that's what you get with Vayachi. That was a little slow. I'm sorry. No, that was great. That was fab. I sort of thought that it was going to end with Chagadia after all of those blessings (laughs) from Jacob. Well, I'm glad that landed. Um... (laughs) That was good. I liked that. Yeah. Yeah. Part of me wanted to end with like Chazak Chazak because we're now at the end and it's like very exciting thing for me, for all of us. I think that's very timely too. We could all use that extra strength right now. So. Chazak Chazak Vinit Chazak. Amen. Amen. So time-wise, about three minutes, 12 seconds. Okay. That's not the worst one. That's right. 30 seconds. So Sierra and Koch, we talked before about what it is to kind of translate Torah into real tangible tactics, this idea of intersecting your personal lives with your spiritual and religious lives, and how it, what it really means to live your Jewish values. And so with that, we're curious about what insights or beliefs or values help push your passions forward and helps influence the work that you do. Okay, I can go first. Um, So I think that a big thing that pushes me in my Judaism is the idea that we learn for the sake of learning, that learning in and of itself is a mitzvah. And not only that, but that learning is what drives us to understand our world. So when we study Torah and we study the world around us with that natural curiosity, it pushes us to learn more. And by learning more, we can challenge the way that we've often been taught to navigate this world. Sometimes what we've been taught is a really valuable and helpful framework, and sometimes it's inherent with it has inherent biases within it. And by engaging that natural curiosity, we can make it we can make better choices about who we want to be and what we want the world to be when we eventually pass and leave it behind to the next generation too. Amen. Amen. I um I think that for me uh, the thing that helps um, undergird what I do in the world is this understanding of um, folks needing upliftment and support um, who are on the margins. And when you look at Torah, a lot of what you see is that people who have been kind of pushed aside, in particular our sibling Yosef in, in these last couple of um, parshiot, um, just really been kind of kicked to the curb by their family and thinking about what what do you do? How do you support folks who are um, who are kicked to the curb, who don't have anyone to stand up for them, and to um, to like say their name and to uplift them? And that's what really drives me. Um, it, it, it I think that being someone who lives at the intersection of a lot of um, identities that get kicked to the curb, um, I just I feel very strongly about um, that being uh, why I do what I do. And um, I don't know, like there's, there was some, uh, I, I had to think about like, what, what are the Jewish values that, that actually uh, set that up for myself? And I think that um, one of them is, uh, one of my Hebrew names is Emet, 
Um, and so that's one of the values um, to not only be truthful to myself, but to be um, a, a spokesperson for truth in the world. The, the other two that, I, that, um, that kind of undergird my, my, my work is um, Shalem, because it, this world, um, particularly uh, white supremacy, and all of its siblings and uh, and children, I guess progeny. So like racism, um, sexism, ableism, capitalism, and on and on and on, set us up as humans to feel not whole, to feel like we're not enough. And so um, this notion that we have um, shalom, which has the same root as shalem, as much as I want there to be peace, I know that for me there is no peace without wholeness and the feeling of wholeness. Um, and I think the the last thing I want to say is that um, I truly believe in Geulah, and uh, not only for uh, myself that there's redemption for when I do things that might have missed the mark, but for um, all of the people around me. And so, if in fact. I believe that we are all B'Tselem Elohim. We all actually have some redeeming parts of ourselves that we can we can interact with. I really love what you just said because it puts a lot of the nuance behind the values that I chose in the forefront. Um, with my limited knowledge of Hebrew, a lot of the values that I take come from the social work world or from my Jewish life and Jewish studies, but without the Hebrew attached. So when talking about Dikun Olam or B'Tselem Elohim, inherent in that is that we really need to talk about what does forgiveness mean? What does it mean that we are all created in the image of God? It's not just about humanity. It's not just about sameness. It's actually about celebrating and honoring the differences um, in, a real, in a way that shows people as authentic whole people. And I think that forgiveness is something that often gets mistranslated as something that you do for other people. And even when we get to the Torah portion, we can talk about how maybe part of the forgiveness that Joseph offers his brothers could also be for them in some respects, as well as for himself. I also think that in Judaism, what's different about forgiveness for us is that when someone apologizes, you're not just saying, I'm sorry, you also match that with action. And I think part of social justice work is highlighting that action and really engaging in that really tough work that makes people uncomfortable to their core. But if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. Yes. Yeah. It, it, this reminds me of um, this project that I did a couple of years ago around Shavuot. And we looked at the the platform from the Movement for Black Lives in terms of invest, divest. And my brother Gray and um, and Rabbi Max Reynolds, we worked on a a DOF, which um, looked at what uh, reparations was and how this was included in um, in a process of teshuva. And, um, you know, went back to Rambam, uh, the Maimonides, and said, there was a formula for this. And when you look at how most people think about what teshuva is, they're just like, yeah, I'm going to say I'm sorry. And it's like, no, first of all, you have to even just admit that there was a wrong happen. And and we see that, like, that, that I don't even know that that happened in, in the uh, portion previous to this, uh, Vayigash, right? Like, with Yosef going to, like, seeing his siblings and being like, yo, here I am. What's up? 
right? Like, uh, <laughs> y'all threw me in a pit, but actually, like, he gave, he gave, like, this forgiveness, right? Or he, he, like, accepted his siblings back into, like, his, 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 um, his sphere, but they don't, I don't think there was ever an apology from, from his siblings to say, you know what, our bad, we should never have done that. And like, this is, how could we, how could we make this up to you? I don't think that that ever happened. They didn't, you know, Rambam wasn't around, I guess, to inform their teshuva process. And so, <laughs> so like, we'll forgive them for that. But like, there is this process and it's not, it's, it's not just about what you say. And it's not just about what you do in private, right? That there is, there, there's actually like a public announcement of your desire to do better, and that this is an ongoing process, that we're never, ever probably going to be um, at reconciliation, because when we have the, when, when the thing comes around again, whatever it was, we just, like, uh, we have this opportunity to either, like, hang out with our brother or throw him in a pit. When that opportunity comes again, that we can make a different decision, we have to do some growing and learning, like you said. And so if we're not, like, uh, kind of learning Learning what is Torah telling us? How are we getting these values, these characteristics, these midot that we want to like stick our 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 um our foot in, so we like it's in us? Then if we're not doing that kind of work, we'll never we'll never get that teshuva that you're talking about. Yeah. Um. So I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because my memory could be super off. But I think that the Torah might make an attempt to show that growth when they try their best to do right by Benjamin in the Parsha before in Vayagash. But it's never explicitly said we are doing this differently because of what we did to our brother. And I think, like you said, that's the missing part where we can read in between the lines and we can have all of this Midrash, all that we want. And we also have to take the Torah at face value and say what is written is written there for a reason. And all the Midrash shows where we are now in our, in our society, whenever that midrash is written. But what's written there is not an explicit apology that includes both action and language. Yeah. I think that's part of the beauty of, of our, our, our process of reading between the lines and like adding, adding in our, our writing, you know, like that little space, the white space in between the black letters, we get to write our own story in there. And that's, that's, exactly i think that i'm part of the learning process that you're talking about like we're we're learning for the sake of learning and also as we're learning we are finding ourselves in the story finding out where we can act differently maybe we'll we'll do better learning from other people's stories because that's often how it works right we it's harder to to learn from what we do but to you know be mad and angry at um yosef Maybe even as he was trying to tell his brothers or the runaround he gave his his brothers, you know, when they when they first came there to Egypt. And he's like, OK, now go home, get your other brother and I'm gonna keep your one brother here. And like, you know, like all of the runaround that he did with them, we could say that, you know, this was bad behavior or whatever, but we can also learn from it. And I feel like that's part of um, that. That is a value that I think we hold as as Jewish people, that we can use these stories to support our own learning in life. So that we don't have to make that mistake. We don't have to throw our brother in the pit, even though history has shown that we continue to do that in, in various ways to different people. I, I think you're both saying a lot of really wonderful things. One of the things that you've both said a couple of times now is learning for the sake of learning, this idea of uh, Torah Lishma. It, it's an incredibly important value in our tradition. The other thing I hear you talking a lot about is that even the difficult places 
have meaning. Even the difficult things we read are important. And that through that discomfort comes learning. I'm reminded of a teacher I had who at one point said, you know, at the very beginning of a class said, cross your arms. And so we all we all crossed our arms. And then he said, great, now switch your hands so that the other arm is on the top. And it was weird. Like, it was the weirdest thing. It was a room full of people I didn't know, and none of us knew each other. And he said, you're a little uncomfortable. You're not in danger, but you're uncomfortable. That's the level of discomfort you need. It's not about jumping off the cliff. It's just about stepping just outside of your comfort zone, not to a place that it hurts, but to a place that it's a little uncomfortable. So I'm wondering, um, you know, we call Torah um, fire in several places. Uh, God says, my word is like fire. We read Torah, as you said, is black fire on white fire. There is something about Torah that's warm and that's illuminating, but there's also something that can burn. Um, so I'm I'm curious as to where you find the discomfort in Torah and how that discomfort translates into learning for both of you. That was a very long way to ask that question. No, I love it. As you were asking, and part of this is me thinking through my answer while building time in, I actually tried the arm thing and I was like, can I actually put my other arm on top? And it was very, it was very uncomfortable. Um, It could be because I'm very uncoordinated, but I really like that because I don't think that's the kind of thing that I've ever tried before. And I learned something new today, (laughs) both about myself and about framing. So thank you. I think a big part of discomfort for me in Torah is finding representation when in either in various communities that I've been in or within my my own identities sometimes I don't feel represented in the Torah and we there's a lot of midrash about queerness in the Torah and there are parts of the Torah for example Moses and his stutter with disability and the Torah but a lot of what we learn comes from that deep, difficult work of having to study and interpret it for ourselves. And I think in a lot of modern literature, there's explicit representation where we can say, okay, I can see that this is meant to be a queer character, whether or not it's explicit. Like there's a lot of coding that's come through centuries, a lot of which can go back to interpretations of religious texts and follows people throughout society moving forward. But when you're looking at the original text before any of these, this coding necessarily existed, it's very difficult to find that representation because you don't necessarily know what you're looking for. And there've been a lot of really great commentaries, a lot of great midrashim about queerness, about disability, about various other identities in the Torah And it depends on which one you're reading, where you can find either representation or some really uncomfortable things that challenge my worldview or challenge my perception of that text. So I think that is my long-winded answer to your long-winded question. Hey. (laughs) That was one of the first things that came to my mind, too, is that, like, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to find myself. You know, as I was just talking about, like, well, we got to find ourselves in the story. And, like, sometimes it's really hard because literally there is no one there that's actually representative of uh, of who, who I am. 
And um, I think that the other thing that, that makes me uncomfortable but also warms me is that there are situations in the Torah that I know were written like millennia ago that are still happening. And I can find myself in some of that. Like I literally have a sibling who told me to lose their number. <laughs> like I've had the banishment of family, right? I, you know, I've experienced some of those things that are in the Torah and I have other people kind of in my, in my chosen family that have like told me like, no, this is my actual story. Like I was actually, I had to leave where I was because of this pandemic. I had to go to another place. And by going to another place, I like went through all these other places trying to figure out where I can be and set up a home and like have food. And so we're finding like this circular nature of Torah for me, like in, in our own world. And so that, yeah, it like both makes me feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this, that somebody else has experienced this. They wrote it down. Like there's a track record or like there's a trace of this story. And also, dang it, like why isn't this fixed yet? Why are we still having stories of people who could be read that they were assaulted, um, you know, a couple of portions back with Dina? And I just, I, I really, really like wish that some of those things that are very disturbing that happen in Torah. Like it makes me uncomfortable to read it. The rabbis wrestle with like, do we read this? Do we translate it? You know, there's a whole section in Talmud where they like have that conversation because it's uncomfortable and it makes me uncomfortable to read some of these things. And, and I, yeah, my, my question is, I wish we didn't have any resonance with that right now. I just find myself being overwhelmingly disappointed with Jacob uh, from the beginning, actually, <laughs> of, of him entering this story. Um, but yeah, to to be... To be um, kind of given given an identity by someone else, and them holding on to that, uh, regardless of who who I am and the expression of myself, um, is deeply troubling. Um, and I see it happening over and over again in our society, which is the whole reason why I think I continue to push back against binaries in general, but also pushing back through pushing back from. Um, I think that, again, like I said this earlier, like white supremacy, what it does is that's, that's exactly what it does. It boxes us in to say you are you actually are worth this much that you are um, that you can only like this is you are a producer of a thing. And so it doesn't matter whether or not you have a disability that precludes you from doing this thing that um, you've been told you are you are supposed to do. And because of that, like it gives us all these labels that absolutely don't fit who we are as people. It wipes away our um, Betselem Elohim beauty and brilliance. And I hate it. Yeah, I, I love what you said. And I think you said it so well. And it reminds me of some of the work that I do with narrative family therapy and narrative therapy in general as models where oftentimes clients might come in with a narrative about themselves or a narrative about their family and their family history or where they fit in with their family. And the therapist's job is to ask questions to help the client. And again, this is very much centered on the client and not the therapist. So as a social worker, it's my job to ask the questions and help the client develop this answer on their own to help build that autonomy and give the power back to the client in defining their story. Because so often they come in with a story that's been crafted for them. It's just like in the Torah, these stories are not coming from 
from Jacob's children. They're coming from Jacob, at least in this scenario. So helping those clients deconstruct their own narratives that they've been given and reconstruct them in a way that gives autonomy and power back to them to say, yeah, this is what I've been told about myself. And this is how I want to tell my story moving forward and finding where those differences exist, why those differences exist, and how clients can use that narrative to move forward it to be hopefully the happiest and healthiest version of themselves that they can be. So I know that we have talked a little bit about the the values that have driven your work that are kind of the the I guess the pivoting of, of your passions, right? The things that that really make you think and teach and lead. And I'm curious in terms of this Parsha, right? What you think people can learn from it that might be battling with their own multiple identities. I know, Koach, you just led a session about this uh, with, a, with a trans group over the weekend. Um, and so you might have some special insights to share with us specifically. But I'm, you know, I, I sit here and I think about the people listening to our show. And I know that some people might not know what the trans community is. They might not know what non-binary is. They might not understand the identities that we're talking about. And so in terms of translating Torah to true tangible tactics, what does that look like for you when it comes to Vayichi? I think there's a couple of things that stick out. One is that um, that there, you can hold the honor of a person even when there is a um, a complete misunderstanding or even a, a um, an affront to to you. Like so, Yosef, you know he he reconciled with his brothers, and it it can be hard to be with um, people who are who have not seen you, who have not been able to recognize you, which his siblings weren't able to, right? And and I think that um, I am as a just personally holding um, from this parsha the uh, the the hope that there can be reconciliation. And that in order for that to happen, though, I have to have like have some kavod. I have to have some honor of the person and persons who I am interacting with, that we have to meet each other at that point of we can see each other's um, godness in each other as opposed to seeing the whatever was coming from them that felt so um, awful and painful. Uh, so that's one thing um, I would take. And then holding on to um, the truth of your being, like, I feel like Jacob was just being true to himself. Now, whether or not that was, um, that actually manifested as uh, a, a great relationships with his family, being true to yourself is what you have to be. So sometimes that's going to rub people the wrong way. And I would hope that people are able to, especially, um, I would say trans people of color are able to stand in their truth. I don't care if it makes other people mad because they say they don't understand you. Be in your truth. And I'm going to be there like to support you, but also like don't back down from who you are because somebody doesn't get it. Yeah, I love that. And it also reminds me when talking about apologies and forgiveness that oftentimes trans people and people of other marginalized identities are asked to do the heavy lifting in forgiving other people. So for example, when someone misgenders me, my pronouns are they and them. If someone uses she or her because I present as very feminine, 
that's an understandable mistake that people make. And the hurt that I might feel based on being misgendered is very real. Having someone apologize profusely, for example, in the way that one might say Joseph's brothers do by saying, we'll be your slaves, we'll do anything that you ask. In Joseph's case, he's not asking for that. He's asking for, in my interpretation, a genuine we're really sorry, we want to do better by you. What does that look like for you? And similarly, when someone misgenders me, I'm asking not for an ongoing prolonged apology, but rather for someone to say, I'm sorry, I used your wrong pronouns. They went to the store or something like that. And I think one thing that we can take away from this Torah portion is both that the apology and the work is very necessary and to make sure that every party does their part in the forgiveness process. So nobody is held more accountable than the other. And that really what's centered is the forgiveness and also the apology, as opposed to just the person feeling sorry that they did something wrong, but rather the person who was offended's feelings and experience. I can also give a quick definition for trans or non-binary if that is helpful to put anywhere in here. When we talk about gender, typically in our Western society, we're talking about male and female or men and women, boys and girls. And that's something that we call the gender binary. So to be non-binary means that I, for example, identify as neither a man or a woman. Instead, I identify with neither of those. I identify outside of that binary. And when someone identifies as trans, it can mean that somebody is non-binary, and it can also mean a variety of other things. So a person who is assigned female at birth, such as myself, when I was born, there was a marker on my birth certificate. It was a little f, which meant female. And I don't identify with that. That was something that was assigned to me before I had the understanding of gender because I was literally second sold. And so as I grew up, I found that to be more of an assignment and not necessarily my identity. So some people identify with a gender that's outside of what they were assigned and that's the trans experience. There are also in many other indigenous cultures and non-Western cultures, and even in Judaism, various gender identities and understandings of gender identity. And maybe Koach can get a little bit into that if we want to get into that, but we also don't have to. Yeah. I, I, all, I would, all I would add, I, I had two things. One, Yosef is, um, is, is at least in, in all of my um, trans-Jewish friend groups, is our um, transcestor, um, like the one person that we can definitely count on in Torah to like absolutely break this binary that that they were like given. Um, and so I love Yosef for that. I'm just adding Yosef to our list of non-binary characters in the Bible. And, <laughs> and uh, what was the second thing I was gonna say? I don't even know what it was. So that's I think that was like the the main point I wanted to to say. And thank you for sharing all of that. I think it's important for people to know those, those, those terms. I think that there's an incredible sense of self um, that comes with sharing your identity. And also, I think there's an incredible sense of self um, that's displayed in this Torah portion and in related Torah portions. We see that 
Jacob in this Torah portion, Jacob or Israel, is living the good life, and he's very happy and well-fed in Egypt, but he says, you know what, I, I need to be buried in Canaan, because that's who I am, that's my identity, and that's where my people are. That's where my ancestors are. Um, and so a promise is made, and the promise is kept. The promise is made not only by his sons, but also by God. We read a few weeks ago in the Jacob's Ladder narrative, God says, I will return you to this ground. And lo and behold, God does, or somebody does. And similarly, Joseph, who is even more accepted and is even more ingrained in Egyptian society, we know and will learn in a few weeks in, I think, Parashat Bo, that his bones are carried back into Canaan. So there is a sense of self that at some point, we learn that at some point, the arc of our lives bends toward that sense of self and bends toward a truer self-identity. So I, I really appreciate what both of you are saying about personal identity. I want to thank you for sharing with us. And I want to ask you, if you had one message to share with our listeners, what would your call to action be? What are you hoping your listeners will do after hearing this episode? I think one of the number one things that I would like listeners to take away is this idea of authenticity and respect and this idea of listening to people when they show up as themselves, when someone tells you who they are. We often hear this in a very negative sense of when someone tells you who they are, believe them. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. But I think it's especially true when someone shows you their true authentic self in all of their complexity. When Jacob shows up and he's living this this good life and he is able to show love towards his sons and he's able to show that favoritism. He shows complexity of character and we need to accept all of that and believe all of that and believe that all of that is capable of existing in us as well. I also think there's a great deal of respect that goes into the burial of both characters when we talk about uh, Joseph and Jacob. And I think that one of my passions is talking about queer burials. So if anyone ever wants to talk to me about queer burials and the history of queer burials, specifically in Western society, that's become a passion of mine for various reasons. But I think respecting somebody's wishes when they're alive means so much more than respecting them once they're dead. And that we shouldn't just show up for each other once someone's gone, but we need to show up for each other and we need to be here for each other while people are alive and carry that respect through after they die. And that's something that I think stands out in the end of this Torah portion and does continue on through the rest of the Torah. So just to round out the rest of the Torah portion, that's what I would take away from the end. But I think it's also very present throughout the entire Torah portion too. Amen. I think there's two things that I would say I would hope people could take away. One is that sometimes the blessing is a rebuke. Um, that sometimes when you are um, given actually the the gift of being told that you've missed the mark in some way and somebody has like been willing to tell you that face to face or however it is they told you, 
um, that sometimes that's an opportunity for growth. And so that's one thing I'm pulling from this portion and like even in myself thinking, yeah, sometimes it it is helpful to get that you 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 rubbed me the wrong way or like what you did created this feeling in me and and I I want I want us to like actually like talk that talk that through. So um that's one thing that um I think is important. And the other thing I would say is um particularly the people who who have been marginalized. And I don't say that um I, I don't say that flippantly because I believe that a lot of people who are marginalized aren't people who are those on the margins. They've just been marginalized. And um that's why I don't use the word minority because I think that's a silly word. Um because <laughs> people who are called minority are actually the people who are majority of folks in the world. Anyway, <laughs> um I, I for people who have been marginalized, I would say continue to uh, read these stories and find yourself in them. I think that is actually the beauty of it. And to write yourself in when you don't see yourself. That's what the rabbis did. When they didn't see what was happening and they said, oh, this doesn't make sense to me, they wrote it. So write your own stories out. Do your own midrash. And also there are ways to find yourself in this text. And if you read it, you can find ways and people who will support that learning. It's it's so important. These stories are they're our stories. They don't belong to a group of people, um, a particular group of people who we think that they've always belonged to. They belong to us. And do that. Do that. Find find folks who will affirm you. And if you need that, like check me out. I'll I'll be your person, your cheerleader. Find yourself in this because you're there. You're absolutely there. Well, I know I never shy away from spending quality time with my friend and classmate, Calix Jacobson. Calix Jacobson is a third-year cantorial student at HGCJRNY with with Gabe and myself. Um, And they are also a musician born and bred in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a connection that all three of our guests on screen today have, which was a very fun pre-show Jewish geography meet and greet. And is now officially living as of today in Jersey City, New Jersey. When they're not teaching religious school, leading services, tutoring B'nai Mitzvah, or saving all HEC students from any tech problem they may ever have in life, (laughs) they are writing music, working on one of their many entrepreneurial ventures, or hanging out with their pet corn snake, Lev. Calix, we're passing the mic to you for Q&A with Koach and Sierra, and we're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'm going to go in order. I took some notes. Um, At the very beginning of our conversation, we talked about this notion of forgiveness in the context of Joseph and his brother, but I was curious how this specifically touches the both of you. When in your work have you practiced teshuva, or when have you received teshuva from someone else? I can speak to wanting, desiring teshuva and not getting it. Um, I, so there, this, this was part of my movement work. Um, I, was, uh, I was a part of the Ferguson Uprising, and there were people that I interacted with, um, other you know, freedom fighters um, who were out on the street with me, like 
there's times where we just didn't get along or didn't agree on a thing. Um, and there happened to be someone that I actually, we really, um, we had a, you know, come to Miriam moment and it didn't work out well. So um, I, I tried um, three times. Actually, I probably tried four or five times before I, I gave up, but I, I went back to this person over and over again saying, you know, I'm sorry about what happened. Um, even though I was the aggrieved party, but I wanted, I wanted us to have some kind of reconciliation and it just never came. And that like aggrieved me and it still does. Like, and I wish that we were able before I left town, cause I don't know when I'll be back in St. Louis and I don't know when I'll interact with this person again, outside of like social media stuff. And I'm just really sad that we couldn't come to a, a, at least some moment of like, I see you, I respect you. Um, I want the best for you. And, um, and like, that's what I really, I continue to hope for that. In my program at WashU, I'm a social work student. And my program likes to say that we need to give grace to one another. And that's a sentiment that has never fully sat right with me as a Jewish person. Giving grace feels very Christian to me, that phrasing of it. But I think that it's the closest that my program really gets to talking about teshuva. And last fall, I was in my first ever social policy class, and the conversation turned to the South and the American South being very backwards and very oppressive. And I do want to say that there are oppressive laws and there are parts of our history as American Southerners, and I am an American Southerner, that I'm not proud of. And when I heard the South being attacked regarding policy, we were talking not just about the policy, but about the people that policies impacted. And a big part of what the person's critique was happened to deal with why do people put up with these oppressive policies and these policymakers? And it really cut to my core because we're talking about a lot of people who live in the South who do this really difficult work of trying to stand up and fight against these oppressive policies and people are continually suppressed, whether it's voter suppression or these policies are enacted that make it nearly impossible for these people to be liberated and to engage in American democracy in a really great way. And we had a really difficult conversation in class that day and it carried on for the rest of the semester where we had those difficult conversations and I was not afraid to speak up and say, this is my experience. And yes, I am a white person growing up in the South. And yes, I'm not going to deny the history of the American South. And we need to recognize that the people that live in the South are not just these white monolith people that we're talking about, but rather that we have plenty of marginalized people who are doing that really great work. And so part of the teshuva process was having those difficult conversations also me backing up and listening to what they had to say and trying to find out where their perspective came from as well. And in having those difficult conversations, we were able to find a way to listen to each other, to learn and grow with and from each other. And I think that's a really great model of teshuva where it exists in an academic context. Thank you so much for sharing, Sierra. And I wanted to uh, circle back. You were talking about uh, giving grace 
if I can give a Jewish equivalent, I would say giving kavod, mm-hmm. um, giving honor and giving strength and like the kavod as a concept. I feel like that's something we talk about a lot at HUC, like giving kavod to other people. And I just hoped that I could give a word to that for you. No, I love that. Um, thank you. Because it's something I've struggled with in this program is constantly hearing giving grace and trying to wrap my mind around like, what is the Jewish equivalent of that? Sweet. Sweet. Um, I actually wanted to touch, if if y'all don't mind, uh, a moment of teshuva that really meant a lot to me. Um, so I'm going to keep names and people anonymous. Um, but basically, so I came into my program at HUC kind of an outsider. I don't have a music degree. Um, I don't have a religious studies degree. Um, and so I came into school feeling like I was totally on the outside, like I didn't deserve to be there. Um, and I had some really difficult run-ins with a couple of people in school um, that I felt like people thought they were better than me um, or that, you know, they were kind of shunning me, being snobbish, whatever the case may be. Um, and eventually we all became friends over the course of the year. Um, but that, that summer, that first like six weeks, once everyone got there, was really, really, really difficult. Um, and I like cried a lot and it was really, really hard. Um, and eventually, you know, it was all it was all kosher um, and it was fine. It was water under the bridge and I was just going to let it go. Um, and then... I um, ended up going out for lunch with one of these people that uh, did not treat me the best. Um, and we were talking, it was me and his friend. Um, and we were talking and we were talking about this other person in particular who was treating me not so nice. And this person was kind of an enabler to that behavior. And he like looked me in the eye and was like, listen, I know what happened was wrong and I am sorry, and that was wrong, and I will never do it again, and you did not deserve that. And it was like the first time in my life someone had like really owned up to something wrong that they have done. Um, I think I've just gotten kind of unlucky with bad friends um, doing things to harm me and then never owning up to it. I have had a couple of friends that have owned up to things, but it was the first time in my life that someone just really looked me in the eye and owned up to something, and it was really an incredible moment. Um, And I still think about that a lot, and he and I are still friends, um, and I just, you know, every, every time I feel kind of down about myself for whatever reason for my, for the class or for, um, you know, feeling like I don't belong, I just remember that like someone from this group cares about me enough to be willing to look me in the eye and you'd say, you know, like you are, you are worthy of being here. I appreciate you. I'm sorry. I treated you wrong. So I just, I, I figured I'd share that story because I was thinking about the idea of Teshuva and that was like the first time someone had truly given me Teshuva. Yeah, that I feel like that's really important. And with imposter syndrome, I think it's important for us to also practice teshuva towards ourselves. And I think for trans people and queer people, um, there's a lot of shame sometimes in exploring ourselves. And a lot of times when we, or at least I, because I can only see from my experience, have felt that I am not being my most authentic self and that I'm hurting who I am at my core by not showing up as fully myself in every situation. And I think that internalizes a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And one of the best things that we can do for ourselves is learn how to do teshuva with ourselves and to ourselves and make efforts to heal that pain that sometimes others have created for us and oftentimes that we have created within ourselves when trying to find out who we are and live as who we are. 
That actually transitions perfectly to uh, another point that I took a note on, which is we were talking about being boxed in. Uh, What is something that boxes you in that you're actively looking to break out of? How are you breaking out of that box and why is it important for you to do? So I am concentrating in mental health at Washington University. And a lot of times when we talk about mental health and social work, we're talking about either clinical practice. So me having clients in my office, or we're talking about policy, which would mean I would go to the capital of Missouri, Jefferson City, or I might go to DC and I'd lobby and be engaged in policy practice. And I feel really boxed in by those two options because for me, mental health work is everything. When I partner with a homeless service organization and I try to help people find permanent housing and use a housing first model, that is part of mental health work because you cannot focus on finding resources for mental health if you don't have a place to live, if you don't have food to eat, if you don't have that physical safety, then it's very hard to engage in any other mental health work really deeply. When we work in education and we work with kids in school, that's mental health work because you have to find a way to help kids feel psychologically safe to show up Because if someone does not feel that they can trust you in a classroom setting or any setting, they cannot be their true selves. And they're always going to be worried about how they show up and showing up in the right way. So I feel very boxed in by this idea that mental health is only mental illness because mental health is something that is impacted by every aspect of our lives. And I'm trying to break out of that by having a practicum at the History Museum where I'm working in disability accessibility or partnering with a local synagogue to help support their mental health support group, their grief support group, but also their partnership with other organizations that are doing that really difficult social justice work in the St. Louis area. Because mental health work is all social justice work. And that's just another big soapbox that I'll step on anytime. I have to agree with you. No, all of these services is directly tied into mental health. I'm not saying that, you know, having a roof over your head and food in your stomach and job security and income security will cure your depression, but it will certainly help a lot of people feel a lot better. Um, So I'm glad that that's something that you're working to break out of because I think it's extremely important work. Thank you so much for sharing, Sierra. Uh, Koach, do you have any boxes that you're working to break out of? So there's a box I've been trying to break out of since I was, I don't know, three or five. And that box is um, not enoughness. And I deal with it all the time, every day. Um, And it, it just, it feels like there's just... I don't know how to get out of this box except for the things that I'm doing. So I'll tell you, um, uh, just because I know some of you can see and some people won't be able to see, but I have a um, I have a chalkboard here. And the only thing on my chalkboard is you are enough. And I look at it every day, all day to remind myself that I am enough. Um, no matter what society has said about my not enoughness or how much I've believed about what society has said about my not enoughness, I try to lean into um, the notion that I am enough and I surround myself with people who remind me of it. That has been a practice, a lifelong practice that I feel like I finally am getting to the point where I feel comfortable asking people for that kind of support 
to affirm the things that um, that I feel not enough about. Thank you so much for sharing. I definitely can relate. I feel like the not enoughness manifests for me as imposter syndrome quite a lot. Um, I feel like I'm often, um, you know, like when I'm in school or I'm in a synagogue or I'm teaching religious school, I just always worry that I'm not doing as best I can and that I'm not worthy of being there. And I'm trying to remind myself that I'm here for a reason. I'm in this place for a reason. These people hired me for a reason. I'm not getting negative feedback. It'd be different if I was getting negative feedback. Um, but I feel like I, you know, my dad always used to say that I was my own worst critic and I definitely am. I, I, I hold myself to a very high standard, but I feel like there should be a difference between holding yourself to a high standard and going back to giving yourself kavod um, and saying, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be you. Um, and I think that that brings us to our final question. Uh, Sierra, you said that you think it's important to honor people before they die, not just after. So I ask both you and Koach, who is someone you'd want to honor right now in this moment in time? And what would you like to say to them? Um, so this is going to sound really cliche and I am tearing up a little bit because I love these people so much. Um, and I want to take a moment to honor my parents because over the past couple of years, I have come out time and time again to them and to other people coming out as a process. And it's something that happens multiple times. Nobody really just comes out just once. And my parents have been really patient with me as I try to find the words to describe myself. And they've found ways to help me be patient with them as they try to understand and they try to learn. I, for Hanukkah, bought my parents a graphic novel about pronouns and about queer identity. And I ordered it while I was home for Thanksgiving to be delivered to the house. And my, my mom said, oh, I didn't know I ordered something from Amazon. And I said, well, you didn't. And I presented them with this book. I will look it up on Amazon and get the title for you. It's just a really fun kind of snarky, because I'm kind of snarky, graphic novel about pronouns and pronoun usage. And my parents have read it. And my dad and I actually had a conversation about what does dead naming mean? And what does it mean to misgender somebody? And why is that even harmful? Because people make mistakes all the time. And shouldn't we be able to forgive each other for these mistakes if it's made innocently? And by asking me these questions, yes, they're asking me to do some of that heavy lifting. But it means that they trust me, and that they have a good enough relationship with me where they know that I can be honest and upfront with them. And by cultivating our relationship, for the past 26 years, I truly just have to take a moment to honor them for that because I know it's not easy on my end. I know it's not easy on their end. And just seeing the love and compassion grow within them and seeing that shine out of them truly brings me to tears in the best way possible. So as cliche as it is, I'm gonna honor them both. It's a really beautiful thing. Thank you so much for sharing, Sierra. I, I, I've had a similar situation with my parents. I came out for the first time 12 years ago and then as non-binary two years after that in 2010 when being non-binary was not a thing in the media. Um, and while it took a really long time for my parents to come around to it, I feel really blessed that they did. Um, and I feel like honoring people who have 
made the, done the work and because they love you um, is a really beautiful thing. Koach, who would you like to honor? So there are um, people who I have on my altar that I honor um, through ritual, but I'll honor them now. One of them is Fred Hampton of Blessed Memory, um, who was a freedom fighter um, in Chicago Black Panther Party and was the kind of originator or at least um, one of the original founders of the Rainbow Coalition. And um, the Chicago Police Department killed him when he was 21 years old. And why I want to honor him is because he was one of those people who is a a bridge builder and a, a someone who brings folks together um, for the sake of um, of understanding who we're actually up against as opposed to ourselves um, and each other. And I just, there's so much kavod I have for him and, and for teaching all of us, but particularly the teaching me that there are moments in which you have to reach for other people who don't even know that they need to reach for you so that we can defeat um, white supremacy. So like all kavod um, to, to Fred Hampton. And Reverend Polly Murray, who was a Episcopalian priest, I believe, um, who is, I believe, a transcestor and um, and stood up for who they were. Um, they were they fought for um, women's rights. Um, they were one of the first, um, I believe, black um, women identified Episcopalian priest and. I think that um, I I want to honor um, Polly because they also, like myself, kind of transitioned or at least thought about transitioning later in life. It wasn't when um, Polly was like in the in their twenties um, that they that they started that kind of medical process. And for me, I just hold so much honor for for Polly because no matter what was coming against them. Um, and their positioning um, publicly, they stood like in their truth, even until the end. And I think that that is just something that I'm hoping to uh, emulate in my own life. That is so beautiful. Thank you so, so much for sharing, Koach. I'm going to honor a laundry list of people. Um, I was talking a little bit about that imposter syndrome that I feel. And so I have never really had a group of friends before. I dealt with some difficult years in school. And, you know, I came out as gay in 2008 in St. Louis, Missouri. (laughs) Koach knows. He's like, no, (laughs) not good. It wasn't good. Um, But I came out in St. Louis, Missouri in 2008 um, as gay. And then in 2010 as non-binary. And so I'd never really had a group of friends that knew me as me and accepted me as me entirely. I, I, I literally keep two friends from that period in time and they were four years older than me. Um, literally, I have no friends from my childhood because of where I grew up. Um, so I want to personally and publicly thank Agnes Barrel, Becky Mann, Ella Gladstone, Martin, Emily Annabeth Houlihan, Emma Mayer, Gabe, our wonderful host, Gabe Snyder, Isaac Sonnet Asur, Jordan Goldstein, Rachel Weston, and Sydney Lazar. They are my cantorial cohort here at HUCGIR and the first group of friends I've literally ever had. I've had groups of people that I've hung out with. I've had groups of people I've made music with. I've had groups of people that I've done trips with, but I've never had a group of friends before. And it's a really beautiful thing to just like, the fact that anybody in that group, if I if I called any of them anytime, they would just, you know, 
tell me what's up, what's happening, how can I help? No matter where they are in the world, no matter what they're doing, they are on my team. And having someone on my team is new for me. And I just wanted to take a moment to publicly give them kavod, honor them, uh, thank them for being my friends. Um, And if I can quote Alexander Hamilton from the breakout musical Hamilton, I've never had a group of friends before, and I promise that'll make y'all proud. Can I just say, like, for, like, two things? One, um, I just want to, there's this moment where I just want to say bless, like, thank God that um, both you, Calix, that you've had this, like, experience of having people in your corner who are able to, like, support you and affirm you. And also, Sierra, like, that you have this experience of your parents coming around, like, being able to have compassion for you and that you have compassion for them through this process of learning and transformation. And so, like, I I just feel like this need or this desire, not a need, but a desire to just, like, give gratitude to God that both of you have been set up for success and I hope that that continues for you um, that you continue to experience love and support in this way because it's so important um, for our lives so thank God I also just want to jump in and say Calix you are so loved and so appreciated for everything that you are and we are speaking for the class we are so lucky to have you in our cohort gonna make me cry (laughs) yeah well back at you so like deal with it as someone who works in mental health crying is completely natural and crying is really important and sometimes those tears are really happy sometimes they're painful sometimes it's a mix of both but the fact that you're so in touch with your emotions is a really healthy thing and I just want wanted to put that in there because crying isn't a bad thing and that's another hill I'll die on Idan, sting. So, Gabe, we're at the end of Genesis. We're we're trying to live the good life, even when we're facing some painful moments uh, of death at the same time. And so, I'm curious: Did you make a drink to die for? Maybe we'll find out. Um. First, a huge thank you to Sierra for being willing to come up with several names and ideas for drinks and collaborating with us on the reasoning behind this one. For Vayachi, we bring you a special take on the whiskey sour with Ha'achim Ha'chamutzim, the Sour Brothers, a cocktail that has some sweet, some sour, and a whole bunch of bitters included within it. Combine two ounces of rye, or your choice of whiskey, you do you, three quarters of an ounce of lemon, a half ounce of simple syrup, which is a lot of sugar, but a lot of recipes call for more. I just personally like to be able to taste the alcohol, so feel free to go with three quarters of an ounce, and one egg white in a shaker. Shake vigorously with ice to get that egg nice and frothy. Pour into a chilled glass with two maraschino cherries at the bottom and a few drops of bitters on top. Try to get those separate and then swirl them together with a toothpick for a fun design. The lemon juice symbolizes Jacob's sour words to his sons on his deathbed, but the syrup dulls that sting. The two ounces of whiskey are for Simeon and Levi. The late addition of the cherries represents Jacob's adoption of Ephraim and Menashe. The swirled bitters, though, you know, bitter, are beautiful, making the best of a bad situation. For a non-alcoholic version, replace the bitters with a citrus peel and the whiskey with either a mixture of half an ounce of vanilla extract and one and a half ounces of water, 
or with the full two ounces of a cool maple tea. Make one for you, one for your sibling, kick your feet up, and revel in being the greatest sibling around. L'chaim. You know what I have to say after a strong drink like that? Chazak, chazak, venit chazak. <laughs> Table flip. That was awesome. Loving everything about this conversation. And I'm kind of sad to say that we've made it to our last section of thank yous and closing cues. So as we're coming to the end of Genesis and an end of our chapter, we're also coming to the end of the longest year of all time, 2020, and entering into what hopes to be a promising new year for 2021. And so Sierra, Koa, Calix, Idan, Gabe, if you had a blessing for the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, what would it be? And Koach, we'll start with you. Wow. Um, I just can't imagine that this year is going to end. Um, <laughs> so that's <laughs> my blessing for, um, for 2021 is that um, we, we actually learn that capitalism is killing us and that we lean into the lessons of mutual aid and cleanliness and taking care of each other and actually listening to people who we have put on the margins so that they become at the center. I think that's my blessing. Can you hear our son, Sierra? Um, so I 100% agree. And I think another part of that is a lot of accessibility tools have come to the forefront of our society with COVID-19 and with working from home, more people are able to work virtually, more people are able to access education in ways that education wasn't already accessible. And even throughout all of this, disabled people have still faced significant challenges in getting their needs met. And I hope that we take this social model of disability that we've learned so much about throughout COVID-19. And we start to consult disabled people and listen to those people who have experienced this for their entire lives. And we start to do better by them. And that we honor these people while they are here and while they are alive and that we don't need to let 200,000 people die or more die in order to build a better and more equitable society. So I'm hoping that we learn from each other. I hope that we listen to one another. I hope that we show up as ourselves and that when we do, we are met with compassion and we are met with curiosity and we are met with love and that we meet others with those same values when they show up as their authentic self because it's only when we all do that for one another that we can build this world that we hope will be better than the one we inherited for the next generation. Amen. Can you hear that song? May it be, honestly, may it be our will. Calix. Um, I have been thinking a lot about vaccines. Uh, I am immunosuppressed due to arthritis. And so I've been very much hiding from this virus. And with this vaccine, I kind of feel the dawning of a new hope. Um, but I've also been thinking a lot about all the other stuff that's happened in 2020. 
um, all of the issues with Black Lives Matter, all of the problems with, again, what Sierra was saying, disability. Um, and I just want to say that in the coming year, I hope that we can all be inoculated against bigotry, racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, and any other kind of hate. And of course, against COVID, may it end swiftly in our day. Amen. Can you hear that song? Gabriel Snyder. More than I'm looking forward to January 1st, I'm looking forward to January 20th. So on that level, uh, I'm going to take a page out of Fiddler on the Roof and say, may God bless and keep the czar far away from us. On a more serious level, I hope that the next administration defies our lowest expectations and achieves at least some of our greatest hopes. Amen. Can you hear that son? Edan. So, first I want to say to the listeners that in most cases, because of, you know, it's recording takes a couple hours usually, I tend to forget my answer that I thought of earlier in the in the session. I usually write it in a private message in the in the Zoom chat to Amanda. And this time, the Zoom call had issues and the Zoom chat was actually cleared. Um, that being said, I do remember the answer that I had before. So my answer is to keep this matim or appropriate, um, not use any bad words. Um, my blessing is just that uh, 2021, I hope that it's not as heckin' bad as 2020. <laughs> that is all. Sometimes the shortest blessings are the most heartfelt ones. So can you hear that, Sony Dan? For me, when I think about blessings that I hope for the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, I hope that we can continue to be in conversation with one another, to really be able to both speak with and listen to people that are like us, are unlike us, may push us, may question us, I truly hope that we're always able to come to the table and be in conversation in order to move us to the next place where we can have shared ground. And with that, Sierra and Koach, if people want to continue the conversation with you, how can they best find or follow you? Sorry, I'm trying to both hold my cat lovingly and answer your question. Uh, the best way to reach me for conversation would either be through Facebook. Uh, feel free to message me. Uh, my name is Sierra Debro. And then also my email, which is debrosj at gmail.com. So that's D-E-B-R-O-W-S-J at gmail.com. I would give you my email, but it's a dumpster fire. So don't email me. Um, you can, though. You can send me messages um, through Twitter because I, I, I'm i like a Twitter dad or whatever. Like I go on there like to see what people say, but I don't really say anything. Um, I don't. Maybe that's the wrong description for that. But anyway, um, dr <laughs> at dr koach. So K-O-A-C-H. Um, you can reach me there. I'm not inviting anyone else to be my friend on Facebook because I just don't understand Facebook uh, in that way right now. And I'm trying to think if there's another way. Oh, I'm on Instagram and it's Dr. KB Fraser, I think. So find me on Instagram. I'm somewhere on there. I'm I'm the only Koach Baruch Fraser. So if you just, 
like Google search that, beware, but also you can also find me. So try that. And a quick shout out to Calix. I'm pretty sure that you have a brand new store up for people that might be interested in buying some merch. Is that right? I do. So I'm currently working on a project. We talked about these entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, and I'm currently working on all sorts of LGBTQ plus positive and also stuff for allies coming soon. Um, and also uh, Jewish adjacent merch. Um, that's all found on Etsy.com at fig and vine creations, like sitting under your fig uh, with your own vine and fig tree, that whole bit. Um, and it's all sorts of good stuff. Uh, the current favorite, um, I believe, is uh, I eat homophobes for breakfast, but a hat. It's a great hat. Um, I saw the I eat transphobes for breakfast hat in person recently. It is great. And 25% of all profits go to the Trevor Project. Um, so you are supporting a graduate student and you're also supporting a great organization. Amazing. Sierra or Koach, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? I also have an Instagram. I forgot that I had one. Um, even though I use it often, you can also reach me um, on Instagram at jmanji, which is J-A-Y-M-A-N-J-I-I because with one eye, it was already taken. And I love puns. I absolutely adore puns. So Jumanji is my favorite. The original Jumanji is my favorite movie. Had to had to get right in there. Um, but I wanted to say thank you because I am so grateful to learn from and with all of you. And I would love to continue this conversation with all of you or any one of you um, at any time. So thank you for helping me understand this Torah portion and parts of my own Jewish framework a little bit better tonight. And I look forward to our conversations moving forward. Hey, I forgot to mention, um, there is a thing called Black Trans Torah Club. And if you know of any Black trans Jewish folks who are looking to study Torah with some other rad Black trans Jews, get a hold of me in one of those ways that I mentioned earlier and would love to study with them. That's cool. And I don't think that I have any jokes because they would all be probably things people wouldn't understand. <laughs> you know, another drink you could get at this uh, queer Jewish bar that we're setting up. <laughs> you could have something called the non-beernary. And that was the whole joke. <laughs> um, I just wanted I to say it. that. It's Thank you. That pun has been stuck in my head for literally hours now. So I had to say it to get it out. Thank you so much to Sierra, to Koach, to Calix, to Gabe, who cannot stop laughing as we finish up this podcast episode. And as always, to our uniquely brilliant, wonderful, fantastically talented producer and truly our savior in life, Edon Waldman. We hope that you have a wonderful new year. You know, I think that sometimes from a rabbinical cantorial education student perspective, we talk about inclusion a lot, but I'm not sure that we always understand exactly what it means, especially when it comes down to embracing or even juggling multiple identities. And listening to, to Koach and Sierra and Calix talk about this idea of uplifting people on the margins and celebrating the differences was really powerful tonight, especially, you know, when we're doing it in the shadow of, of Vayahi, when 
Jacob just decides to pinpoint one characteristic about each of his sons on his deathbed, no less. Absolutely. But there's also something that Koach said that really resonated with me, and that's if we don't see ourselves in the text, that we have the ability to read ourselves in, or write ourselves in, as the rabbis did in countless midrash. So I really appreciate our guests today, not only in uh, what they took out of the text, um, but how they put themselves into it. I think that's real. Similar to how you talked before about crossing the opposite arm over and, and being a little uncomfortable, Sierra also said something really powerful, this idea that if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. And I know we've talked about that too, this idea that growth has to come from some brokenness. There has to be a little bit of breakage in order to find new room to expand, to grow, to change. Definitely. And as we're ending Genesis, I'd like to point out that a lot broke in this book of Torah. Some things were fixed. It seems like people are in a really good place in in Egypt. But we know because we know these stories that things aren't going to be that things aren't going to stay fixed forever, that more things are going to break then more things are going to get fixed. It's a cyclical thing that we all go through and it's reflected in our Torah. So with that, we say Shalom, Lechitra to Genesis until next year. And we're really excited to come into Shemot with you all next week. So, Gabe, what do you have to say to that? Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek, and Lechayim. Lechayim. Shalom, everybody. I'm Koach Frazier. I'm Sierra Debro. You're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Tour with a Twist. And just so you know, you can do the Macarena to any song. You can also sing Adon Alam to the Macarena. <laughs>